0: to the journey home podcast
1: Welcome to the Journey Home podcast This is Matthew Starrett I'm a psychotherapist and musician based in Surrey UK The premise for the Journey Home is to offer space for conversation with those sharing a lived experience of addiction mental health and a multitude of topics that resonate with the guest The aim is to promote awareness of the dialogue content and serve as a pathway to therapeutic services Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Stan Steindl. Stan is a clinical psychologist in private practice at Psychology Consultants Pty Limited, and an adjunct professor at the School of Psychology, University of Queensland, Brisbane, Australia. He is also co-director of the UQ Compassionate Mind Research Group. Stan has over 20 years experience as a therapist, supervisor, trainer and researcher and works with clients from motivational interviewing and compassion-focused therapy perspectives. He is the author of three books and several book chapters and research publications. His books include Compassion in a T-shirt, The First 35 Scripts, and The Gifts of Compassion, How to Understand and Overcome Suffering. I first became aware of Stan when I was writing my dissertation on meeting my shame with compassion. Another advocate for compassion Chris Germer directed me to Stan's work and I've been paying close attention ever since. There's a really great article that Stan wrote on shame and self-compassion, which resonated so much with me and my own journey. I'll put a link to this along with the aforementioned books in the episode description. I'm really looking forward to this one. So let's dive in with Stan Steindl. I'm here with Dr. Stan Steindl. Stan, thanks for being here with me today.
2: Thank you, Matthew. Great to be here.
1: How are things with you?
2: Well, good, busy. Um, today, I had a couple of things that I'd hoped to do, and I did some of them, but um, <laughs> I was out and about a bit. And and um, just before we came on, I finished writing up a, a little compassion-focused therapy session so uh, my mind is is in the place of, of talking about CFT, if, if that's going to work for you.
1: That works absolutely brilliantly. Um, I was actually going to ask if we could go back a bit, but integrating that, of course. Tell me about your journey to becoming a clinical psychologist and what drew you to compassion and compassion-focused therapy.
2: Yeah, well, I, um, I first got interested in in psychology probably at high school really which is a long time ago now probably 1987 i guess when i was in about grade 11.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: and uh i like you know many of us you go through your ups and downs and and had a a bit of a difficult patch there i think you could say and and um was introduced by one of the Older fellows at the school um, to Victor Frankel's *Man's Search for Meaning*, mm. and so read the book. And mm-hmm. uh, my grandmother actually was a GP, a, a medical practitioner, but by that stage, mm-hmm. she'd moved a bit more into counselling and and so on. And so she was a big influence as well. She she introduced me to Carl Rogers
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, on becoming a person. Yeah. And she was also very interested in Fritz Pearls, actually. But I, I didn't dive in so much to Fritz Pearls. I was more interested in in mm-hmm. Carl Rogers. And uh, kind of decided almost there and then that I, I was pretty keen to to try to help people and to to be a part of to have that, I guess, as a part of my life and, and mm. to to work towards that. I went to to uni University of Queensland here at, at in Brisbane, Australia. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, worked at a, a kids helpline, a telephone counseling service during during uni and mm-hmm. and um, then gradually just yeah eventually registered as a psychologist and and sort of have worked in the public sector and and but more really the private sector now. I've had my own private practice for the last 23 years, 24 years I think we might be up to.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: And probably the area that first brought me to compassion was actually something called motivational interviewing. So Mm -hmm. uh, motivational interviewing or MI, it it really is about having compassionate conversations with people to Mm. sort of to to work towards change. So my PhD was with combat veterans who who had Mm. post-traumatic stress disorder, but also Alcohol problems. They, they were drinking to cope, which, you know, in some ways makes complete sense, you know, with, yeah. with PTSD and the hyper arousal that goes along with that. And they would use alcohol to, to help them cope. So, so we used motivational interviewing to to have compassionate conversations with these fellows. They were mainly men at that stage and, and um and to kind of explore whether, you know, pique their curiosity maybe about mm. you know changing their drinking. And compassion really is a core part of, of what they call the spirit of MI, you know, in terms right. of having those those conversations. But then after that, uh, probably more recently, more like mid-2010s, around 2010 2000- 14 or something like that, uh, I became uh, aware of and had some training in in compassion focused therapy, Mm -hmm. uh, which is an approach developed by Professor Paul Gilbert from over there in in Derby. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, it just really gelled, I think, you know, the the, the motivational interviewing stuff and having compassionate conversations, the, the compassion focused therapy, really trying to develop um in in people, their own um compassionate motivation, their own compassionate selves, which is really what Cft is all about is is helping people to connect with that part of themselves, that part that really is already in there. How can they develop their compassionate motivation, not only to be compassionate perhaps towards others uh, and bring you know that kind of compassion into their lives, but also, Uh, being compassionate towards themselves and and kind of helping themselves through you know difficult life experiences or difficult emotions Uh, we can sort of talk a little bit about all of that too perhaps Mm -hmm. later but um Mm -hmm. but yeah using this compassionate self to to navigate all of that and and kind of um you know rather than things like Stress and anxiety and sadness and self-criticism and a whole bunch of other things running the show. Mm. Let's see if our compassionate selves can can be kind of alongside as as we're working with all of that. So, sorry, that was a, a bit of a long story, but that's kind oh, of that's, yeah how we got the CFT.
1: It's very cool. Uh, really interesting. Um, I was just jotting some of the things down so I didn't forget, but certainly a lot of similarities. That I recognize, but it sounds like a real integration, the Frankel, the Rogers, the unconditional positive regard, the MI, which something be great to talk about more, an area I don't know loads about, but it sounds like it has has something for you in there that fits along nicely with that other stuff. And I know integration can be quite a healing force if we've sort of grown up with perhaps a there's a right or a wrong answer, but actually sort of taking different parts and just seeing what works. Um, what Do you remember what it was? You know, I'm aware Frankel's A Search for Meaning, Roger's Unconditional Positive Regard. Does that tie into that compassionate stuff for you, any of those parts?
2: Absolutely. I mean, I think you know Victor Frankel reading Man's Search for Meaning was very striking at the time. I mean, there I was sort of 15 or 16, and, and mm. as you know, he was talking about experiences um, at Auschwitz as, as, a, as mm-hmm. a Jewish person in Auschwitz. So it was all about trying to survive in the context of terrible suffering. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so th- this is one of the things about compassion. You know, like mm-hmm. compassion isn't just about being nice or something. You know, yeah, compassion yeah. is about engaging with suffering. Yeah. Uh, so it it often takes, uh, you know, as much as anything, compassion takes a, an, a, an enormous amount of courage, really, yeah. to be able to approach suffering and to be able mm. to approach really, you know, the dark side in a way of 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 humanity. And so I think, you know, that as an impressionable young person, I, I was absolutely taken with with this this sense of human suffering, mm. and what to do to try to create meaning out of that rogers you know absolutely extended that for me i mean that was Mm. a very humanistic approach it was about sort of empathy and unconditional positive regard and congruence all those Mm. things you alluded to before Mm. Uh, but with a an absolute absolute motivation to be helpful to to try to kind of be be of help to people who are struggling struggling or suffering Mm. Mm. with with aspects of their lives not trying to tell them what to do not trying to yeah. you know force them in a particular direction but really believing in their own ability to you know find their way through and to grow uh and to flourish in the end and i think that was the thing about rogers is there's a, a great quote from rogers which is along the lines of if i can accept myself as i am mm. then i can change And Mm. so a big part of Rogers is about, you know, how can we as the therapist perhaps really begin that, you know, we we can accept that person without judgment, um, without criticism, but to accept them as they are, maybe they can then start to accept themselves as they are and then maybe they can start to change. And then Rogers was definitely Mm. a link to motivational interviewing. So Bill Miller yeah uh, is the is really one of the key developers of mi along with mm-hmm. steve rolnick yeah and bill and steve took the rogerian approach but then with a little tilt you know the thing about mi is okay so what as we're listening as we're empathizing as we're reflecting mm. what's the language of the client that we can really start to work with you know what what are the sorts of things that people might say that might predict what they go on to do. Yeah. So Rogers is definitely in the mix there with with uh, motivational interviewing, uh, but it's it's kind of this development towards working with the psycholinguistics of change and and exploring sure. the language of the client, and and then and then really you know the the, the compassion focused approach, kind of almost just you know, for me at least yeah yeah um, perhaps not literally in in the literature but for me. Um, CFT becomes just this, this um, way, this model of the mind that we can use to, to help people um, suffer less.
1: Yeah, oh, I really like that. Thanks for explaining that in that very, com- what felt like a compassionate way. I can really hear the compassion as you speak, which is, it's, it's really cool hearing you speak about it. I can hear how passionate you are. Um, and you mentioned about working as a therapist. So a couple of things I wanted to explore. Firstly, talk about your experience of therapy.
2: My experience of therapy as a therapist.
1: So, if it's okay, how you've experienced um, therapy sitting in the sort of client chair, but also if we could look at both, does that feel okay?
2: Absolutely. I am I, um, very happy to share. Uh, there's been a couple of times in, or a few times probably in my life, where I've been in the client chair. Mm-hmm. Um, and um uh, definitely the 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 first occasion of, of that was in and around that grade eleven kind mm-hmm. of era.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and actually that was that was interesting because uh, that was with a school psychologist. Mm. Um, th- this is this is a bit complicated and, and a little bit delicate, so you know just just a little kind of um Uh, it's not not so much a warning but just a little nod there for listeners that that this is a little bit complicated not Mm. not really so much for me in a way but um but what actually happened there was I saw the school psychologist and had some sessions and so on with him and and, uh he, he actually was very helpful for me and and um uh not least I mean he was sort of a bit of a vocational psychologist as well so i I did sure. a bunch of questionnaires yeah yeah you know what what I would like to do with my life type stuff mm. and he gave me feedback that perhaps you know I had a really strong interest in helping others that the thing I alluded to before mm-hmm. uh and he suggested you know psychology I guess and I was already in that heading in that direction and so on and so forth the bit that makes this complicated is that, that very sadly, uh, it turned out that this particular person was mistreating students. And much later in life, I not not much later in life, but certainly after I'd finished school and was an adult and so on, this this became uh, now suddenly widely known. I I didn't know about it. It's now yeah. widely known, and sadly, other students were very very badly affected mm. by this particular individual and you know one thing led to another there was a lot of legal kind of problems and and um uh actually in the end yeah it was there was sort of a, a lot of tragedy actually that really mm. was involved in that so it's, it's actually i i only describe all of that because you know when i you know having been in the client's chair you know that that Something that really felt quite helpful, suddenly there's this awful sense of betrayal there actually from, and again, uh, luckily, Mm. I guess for me, I I wasn't um, sort of someone that was targeted there. But, um, you know, I think that it really, I suppose the thing that really hit home is just the enormous, uh, the the power in the relationship there, Mm. the, the the therapist, is in a very powerful position mm. and, and even if we put aside some of those really bigger dynamics, uh, you know, it, it's really important for, for me to, ha- to, to deeply respect the client, to, to really honour their wisdom, to, to honour their understanding, to, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to be evocative and to listen and, and to, to be able to help them to feel the, the, the agency, the self-efficacy, the the empowerment to you know make yeah.
1: choices autonomy. for
2: themselves and and, sure. and and to really manage those those interpersonal slash kind of power dynamics very carefully and yeah. um and so the 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 kind of the, the 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 putting the client first is is kind of probably um one of the outcomes
1: there for me yeah and I'm sorry if that, that brought up anything too much or that isn't comfortable to share.
2: I feel very comfortable sharing it. But, but yeah, that, that was a, a very, um, you know, kind of key sequence of events, I suppose you could say, in terms of, yeah. you know, kind of shaping me as a therapist as much as anything.
1: Totally. Um, and I guess part of this for me, you know, I've, I've called the podcast a journey home and I'm kind of thinking about each individual's journey to where they are today and it being, I guess, that notion of journey, not a destination and continuing on and having that safe base. And it sounds like you you try and foster that for your clients. Um, you know, you spoke about, I guess what I heard there was, was autonomy and again, going back to that more integrative approach or, you know, a non-dogmatic right or wrong, but actually what's best for this person and how can I be alongside them? And which leads me to my next question, which, uh, which is, as a therapist, how do you integrate areas such as CFT, um, acceptance and commitment therapy, CBT and motivational interviewing? We've spoken about a few of those, but um, I believe you, you utilize acceptance and commitment therapy. And certainly I know from the sort of Frankel stuff that can link in. But yeah, talk to me about how, how you integrate all those things with clients
2: well let, let me just say first that, that you know later on other experiences of therapy for me have been um you know very positive and mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and effective yeah um there were certain transitions in my life where uh you know kind of a good therapist you know was was particularly helpful okay um and um uh, and so, yeah. and and the other thing that I would mention too in that part of the journey is mm. supervision and and yes. some really important mentors along the way. I would mm. say that that really helped to uh, kind of consolidate a lot of those you know mm. kind of ideas and, and and sort of approaches with clients. Your, your use of the word autonomy is is perfect. You know that that right. actually yes, uh, at my sense there is that we're really wanting to support autonomy and mm-hmm. respect choices and mm. be evocative and uh, affirm and, and build confidence and, you know, all of those sorts of things is, is at yeah. the heart of it. Um, so, yeah, over the years uh, I've, I've actually got a sort of a picture in my mind in a way, mm. like I, I, in terms of integrating mm-hmm. different models. So it, sort of one pillar is kind of a cbt model a cognitive behavioral therapy type of of model and and, um you know in many ways that's where my training began was with cbt at uni and so on and Mm -hmm. understanding thoughts and cognitions and the role that they might play in how we interpret events around us and and therefore how we feel about it Um, also you know some of the behavioral theory you know sort of Mm. um Pavlov or Skinner or, sure. uh, um, you know, that sort of thing, uh, conditioning, operant, um, classical conditioning and operant conditioning. So all mm-hmm. of that is kind of one pillar. Mm-hmm. but then there's the acceptance and commitment therapy pillar as well which is sort of that, that's more the third wave type of a therapy is, as they say mm-hmm. uh starting to integrate mindfulness and mindfulness-based approaches you know rather than challenging thoughts is the what is there a way to defuse them or to mm-hmm. you know let thoughts go is there a way to to let feelings be there, the acceptance kind of piece, mm-hmm. and trying to yeah live a life that is true to our values. So those kind of feel like the the two pillars. Beneath mm-hmm. that is the kind of the the humanistic stuff, the the person centred, mm-hmm. um, Carl Rogers uh, motivational interviewing. That kind of feels like a, a, a my you know sort of interpersonal sort of foundation. If the you core. like, yeah. And, yeah, the the core, the foundation, the you know, the things are built upon that. Everything's built upon having a a, a good relationship where the person feels heard and understood, mm-hmm. and where they feel safe. Yeah, and then over the top, like a sort of an umbrella mm-hmm. or something, is the, is the compassion focus. You know, mm. is is trying to to do all of this, whether it's the CBT or the ACT. You know, trying to do all of this with a a kind of a compassion focus. You know, where we um, uh, warm it up a little bit, you know, mm. the, the, rather than a, a kind of a being too rational about it or something like that. We we try to to, to warm it up a little bit create a bit of um, bit of a compassionate tone, um, mm. and um, and sort of yeah, kind of work with work with the tricky brain, and yeah. you know, kind of
1: and so on. Let's talk about that, the tricky brain. So how do we navigate that as humans in this day and age, this tricky brain with suffering as part of the human condition? But I'm aware, you know, you spoke about in your, your PhD, I believe you examined uh, PTSD and comorbid alcohol dependency. You spoke about that earlier. Um, so in instances where there is such trauma um, and shame, which is something I, I wanted to explore a bit further with you and perhaps now is now is the time how how do we navigate those that stuff so we have this tricky brain but also there are the things that happen in our life so it's almost like we've inherited a lot of stuff and then stuff happens to us and i guess the sort of the emotional systems can go into a difficult space and that soothing system is very hard to to reach quite quite understandably um, without putting you on the spot, how do you feel we, we can navigate that with with compassion? And you know, how can that serve that for when certain sufferings are so stuck, they're they're so embedded and maybe always will be there. Um, but how can compassion serve us, serve others?
2: Yeah, I can definitely hear the the sort of your your sort of awareness of CFT woven through the question. That's very very nicely, <laughs> nicely done. <laughs> Because yeah, you're right. We we, uh, our brains are very very tricky. They're they're Mm. sort of actually they're they're quite often they're quite unruly. They they, they can be quite chaotic and and Mm. certainly Mm. um, you know a a source of our suffering. Mm. Um, But CFT is really an evolutionary based approach uh, at at the heart of it. It it really looks at our evolved brains, the, the way that evolution. Mm. over millions of years, has mm. designed these brains for us. Mm. Mm. Uh, and, of course, if you think about evolution, it's particularly concerned with survival and reproduction, I guess. Mm. Um, evolution doesn't worry so much about making us happy. <laughs> and so the, the, the brain is tricky because it, it, it does exquisitely well uh, helping us to, to to survive and so on um but it but it does cause us a lot of suffering and mm. and you mentioned the emotional systems I mean the, the classic sort of one that a lot of people are very familiar with is is the threat system mm. so the threat system sometimes they known as sort of the the fight flight freeze appease system mm-hmm. or, or fight flight freeze fawn yeah um you know this, this is all about the brains threat protection motives, you know, mm-hmm. where our brain is designed to protect us from threats, either by fighting off the threats or running away from the threats or kind of freezing yeah. on the spot, mm-hmm. hoping the threat doesn't notice us or something. Yes. Um, and and the, the appease one is very interesting because we're a sort of a hyper-social species as well. Mm-hmm. And so one of the great dangers is that we'll be disapproved of Mm-hmm. By others yes. and cast out of the group. Yes. And so the threat system is often there, you know, kind of activated like social threats. Mm. And, and so appeasement, especially trying to appease others, uh, uh, have, be approved of, uh, maybe even things like people pleasing or sure. self sacrifice can be mm-hmm. there a little bit. But all of that, is kind of our tricky brain and 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 really trying to help us to 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 survive Um, anxiety anger uh, disgust and so on are all wrapped up in in the threat system yeah we also have the drive system Mm -hmm. which is that that drive to to seek and obtain you know food or other resources or or find a mate and so on
0: mm-hmm.
2: you know so that's the part of our brain that gets us out of the cave you know and and getting stuff getting the stuff we need but you also mentioned the soothing system mm. so that's the third part is is the the soothing affiliative system which is really all about we feel safe when we're connected with others you know we mm-hmm. feel safe in the group um kindness, um, nurturance, mm. um, looking after one another mm. is a big part of, of human survival as well, especially when you think about our tiny babies. You know, they're very vulnerable. Mm. Uh, they certainly can't survive on their own, and so we were we We've sort of evolved to to look after our vulnerable young, but we we sort of evolved to look after each other as well. That's the soothing mm. system. I mean, we can be very cruel too, as a species. We're probably
0: yeah.
2: the, we, we probably have the potential to be the cruelest species, out yes, of all of them. Um, but we are also a very caring species, and we look mm. after each other. And, and just just I'll, I'll throw it back to you in a moment, but but the yeah. other thing you actually said was, that we're born with these tricky brains, threat, drive, and soothing, mm. but then as you said, things start to happen mm. in our lives. Mm. You know, it, and it, it depends, you know, like where we're born, mm. who our caregivers are, mm. how they treat us, mm. our life experiences, all of that starts to shape us as well. And and some of that can actually kind of fold back into Threat system activation, so that all of a sudden we don't feel safe with others, but rather feel threatened by others, and that can lead to all sorts of of um, yeah tricky kind of difficult situations for us.
1: Yeah, it's almost like I'm thinking of the the cave person times. We we're not born. We don't stay in a cave. Now we 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 might be born. We might be flying around the world. We might be there are abusive relationships, uh, but all this kind of stuff that, that can affect it. But even what came up for me there was the, the attachment wounding, you know, and and how perhaps perhaps with a more secure base, it's easier for the person who grows up, they're going to sway, I think as, all, as we all do, there isn't a perfect answer, but maybe having that more secure, compassionate base. But perhaps if the parents weren't there, they weren't as caring or as a bit chaotic, it can lead to, maybe being in one or the other, you know, because I think that's the thing, isn't it? We're, we're relational beings, but that can get a bit distorted sometimes, and it's, it's really tough. And to, to hone in a bit on shame, if, if I may, because I learned about you via Chris Germer when I was gathering research for a paper I was writing on meeting shame with compassion. It was actually in my dissertation, and really, really valued with what you, with, with what you wrote about shame. It just great just just sometimes I guess it goes back to that sort of meeting in the therapy room or just with people sometimes it's just sometimes languages yep yeah, that that's it um talk about shame and the role self-compassion might play in the relationship between shame memories and areas such as such as depression so we've evolved as an adult maybe with depression anxiety toxic shame um, how can self compassion come in there? I guess for, for the in that in the midst of desperation when it feels so all encompassing and everything is so activating and our, the systems are just flooded with all that difficult stuff.
2: Yes, shame is is such a well, really a, a universal, you know, ubiquitous emotion. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's kind of everyone experiences it really at, at sort sort of to different degrees and and yet it, it really is also one of the most painful mm. uh, emotions that, that we might have to cope with mm. um some of the 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 origins of that are, are quite interesting in terms of what you were saying before that mm. uh, if we grow up with you know sort of plenty of memories of sort of warmth and safeness and security and so on um then and that can be you know well that can be very powerfully positive and and um but if we're if we grow up and, and have sh- these shame experiences mm. uh we're, and we're, we're left with some sort of shame memories especially mm. early memories of shame mm. um they, they can actually have those, those memories themselves can actually have quite traumatic qualities you know a yeah. bit like PTSD, I guess, or that sort yes, of thing. Yes. We, we, can, we can re-experience those memories or, or you know, it creates that um, kind of avoidance of certain things. It creates mm-hmm. that um, hyper-arousal kind of symptoms as well. And, and, and not only that, but these shame memories, on the one hand, they have these traumatic qualities, but on the other hand, they also kind of become sort of central to our sense of self, to our, our sense of identity. Mm. So uh, these, you might. Um, I, I often use the the example for me of of music and guitar playing, and mm. and that as a sort of a, a I think sort of t- I guess teenager, young adult somewhere there. Mm. I I was out the front of a large group of people that was some professional body doing a having a a, a dinner, and I mm-hmm. was somehow playing guitar and my girlfriend Mm -hmm. at the time was singing Mm -hmm. and i lost my place i was Mm -hmm. to my credit i was trying to play a very complicated version of body and soul which is sort of a jazz number i had all these extended chords yeah yeah see i'm still trying to defend the show but um you know like i i lost my place and it was terribly embarrassing to say the least but the self-conscious emotions Came up, I, I felt quite ashamed by the whole thing, mm. and really haven't performed since. You know, even mm. even now, recalling that experience, you can feel the face flushing. You know, mm, you can gosh. sort of, yeah,
0: the
2: body kind of. You sort of think, oh, you know, like, and and you know, I've ever since then, I've, I've been, you know, mainly just a rock star in my own bedroom type thing. I, I really haven't performed since. And I mean that's that's a very mild example, you know, for the sake of the discussion. But you know, things can feel like that. You know, people can recall those memories and and re-experience again yeah. those feelings.
1: But it sounds like it was, you know, I think that's a really, I don't want to say great example because it sounds like a, you know, I I recognise that being a horrible thing, but I really can recognise that. But I think it's a really powerful example of how. I don't know if this fits into the tricky mind, but how often there can be the part of the brain that can say, well, this is fine, what's going on here? But actually the felt sense is, is petrified, it's in hyperarousal, which can then lead to conflict in itself. Because I guess with the new brains, we can rationalize maybe in ways that, I mean, you know, you, you alluded to the fact that we're, we can be quite cruel beings and we're quite complex species. Certainly watching some of those nature programs I'm not sure how much shame goes on for the animals, as in they might not get the catch. Well, I'll just go and get another one. But I can imagine us as humans potentially going back and thinking, oh, I didn't get that catch. They're going to think I'm so bad. I can never do this again. And but so, but so powerful. Um, so how, what kind of things for you? Um, are there any recommendations? around things like shame, you know, when because for me it sounded like in, in that moment the, the great example you gave and from, from what I recognize about when it sort of shifts from the the human conditional I've done something wrong versus the shame that says I am wrong, which is much more complicated, I guess. Um, where where does compassion where can compassion sit? 'Cause I'm going back to your image of sort of the painting over, you know, how, how can somebody begin to access what is potentially a very threatening thing, you know, kindness to somebody who's used to shame, perhaps, you know, trauma, just it's horrible, but it's known, I guess, is the thing sometimes change. So, yeah, I wonder if you could say a bit about your experience and, and you know, how you work with that kind of stuff.
2: There's so much in, in what you've just said there. And there's a bunch of things I'm trying to make sure I can remember because I, <laughs> I, I want sort to of- Comment on them. I mean, the first thing is that we absolutely get caught up in loops of the mind. Mm. So social threat activates threat system Mm. and then we start to ruminate. Then we start to worry. Then we start to self-criticize, catastrophize, mind-read. I mean, the list kind of goes on, and and these are the the loops in the mind, which which is really really difficult with shame. You know, we 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 experience a kind of a a, a sort of a self-consciousness mm. in the moment yeah. uh, in which something's things occurred, but then the newer brain kicks in and and loops in with that older brain. Mm-hmm. and so the the external becomes internal now what we're really battling is this internal process of the mind mm-hmm. that's keeping alive this this particular experience you, you're right if, if we flip it the to, to think from the the um zebra's point of view rather than the lion's point of view you know, they they um if the lion starts chasing them boom, up they go, their threat system's activated, they run, 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 run. One of the zebras, sadly, uh, gets caught by Mm. the lion and then all the other zebras, their physiology just goes down, regulates again and they're just sort of sitting, standing around probably um, eating grass.
0: Mm. Uh,
2: The the lion's chowing down and, and they're all feeling kind of safe again. But humans have this thing where we're like, did you see that lion? Did you mm. see how big its teeth were? Well, imagine if it had caught me. What's it like mm. to be eaten by a lion? What's mm. it like to die? You should have run faster, you idiot. <laughs> you were too slow. Or
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. That. All
2: the worry and rumination and and mm. self-criticism kicks in and just kind of keeps that threat system activation alive. And and shame is a lot like that. You know, we we end up With shame memories, you know, we we tend to get caught in loops of the mind, feeling no good, feeling inadequate, feeling inferior, um, feeling worthless. An Mm. important thing to remember about that, though, Mm. is that shame was was sort of also part of the evolutionary design. Yes. You know, shame does have an evolutionary adaptation Mm. Um it doesn't feel good at all, mm. but it had its role in human survival, which was to, um, you know, kind of be able to recognize social threat, to be able to monitor ourselves in the yep. group, yep. to identify where we might be seen as, as no good or disapproved of, and mm-hmm. and to really protect ourselves from the threat mm. of being cast out. Yeah, you know, because if we're out there and there's a lion and there's half a dozen of us well, we can probably shoo the lion away maybe. But Mm. if we're out there alone Mm. in the wild and a lion starts to get interested, we're dead. And Mm. so shame does have a kind of an an adaptive kind of function or purpose to it, at least from that evolutionary point of view. And that's actually Mm. where we begin Ah, with compassion because compassionate wisdom... Mm. Is about understanding. We have these tricky brains that were designed for us and not by us. Um, that a lot of things are in the design that are very difficult: anxiety, anger, but also shame. Mm. Um, and that so much of that is not our fault. Yes. So that's where we begin with compassion. That that um, that we we really we we understand some of that. We have we have insight into our tricky brains, and that that so much of our Suffering is, is not our fault. I did another video once mm. called Born to Feel Worthless. Okay. Not born to be worthless, mm-hmm. but we are born to feel worthless. In other words, it's in our brains. We're, we're kind of primed yeah. to worry about that. To gonna, worry about yeah. being worthless, to worry about not being good enough, to worry that I'm not a good enough collaborator, or I'm not reciprocating well enough, or I'm not going to, I'm not going to sort of contribute here, or or whatever it might be, and the, mm. because the idea is if we feel some of that, then at some evolutionary way, um, we're more motivated to to sort of contribute. So yes. it's not our fault. Our, no. our feelings of shame are not our fault, but. They are our responsibility. So that's the next bit with compassion. Mm. How can we start to learn about the mind, the how it works, the nature of our suffering, and start just step by step to find ways to, you know, sort of respond differently in these yeah. situations, to respond differently to our anger or anxiety, to respond differently mm-hmm. to our shame and shame memories, and start to work out, you know, what is it that I really need right now? What is it that would be most helpful in this situation? And, and perhaps how can I do that? How can I start to cultivate this compassionate part of me so that I can be helpful rather than harmful?
1: De- definitely. Oh, that's really interesting. I love the way you, you summarised all of that. And uh, so much was, was coming up for me, almost the sort of, that Jungian notion of resistance leads to persistence, you know, almost how I'm thinking of intergenerations. And it seems that psychoeducation is so important because to kind of come into somebody who is so shame-based and say, be kind to yourself, it's pretty going to activate the threat system. It's like, whoa, but actually that psychoeducation and going, oh, I understand this now. Whereas subconsciously out of survival, for whatever reasons, family systems continue and continue and continue. And almost that kind of, great 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 uncle jim's voice can come out and whoa but i guess what it brought up for me and it links in a bit with the act stuff the act stuff sorry the act stuff um uh, compassion focused therapy mindfulness for sure it's that acceptance doesn't mean liking it but that can help with that sort of resistance which is continuing the suffering um But we can then take responsibility, and I guess in those family systems, break that. Perhaps that could be the time when we break that. So whilst we're born with it, acknowledging it and realizing we have a choice is very liberating. But I I recognize how, when it is so ingrained, it is very, very difficult, Um, I recognize that.
2: just something you said there really, um, I, I thought it would be interesting to mention that mm. that um, you're absolutely right that the the trauma especially can lead to various epigenetic changes, which mm. you know, which can potentially be passed down. But there's some very interesting research going on mm. where where compassionate mind training and compassionate meditation and various programs that look at cultivating this part of us, this compassionate part, that can lead to epigenetic changes too. Oh, amazing. You know, it, it, we, we can actually start to shift things, not only emotionally or behaviourally, but epigenetically. And it's, yes. it's early stuff, but it's very interesting to think that, uh, you know, we we can manage it, we can influence it. There are things that we can do that not only might be helpful for ourselves, but also for you know people that come next or whatever as well.
1: And it, it makes so much sense hearing that and really keen to check that out because I can hear if it's been a certain way for so long and we've seen the data from that, it would make sense that bringing in some new data and putting that into the system and the genes could have a really positive effect, hopefully, whilst, of course, us still being those human beings. But... Much like the journey continues, evolution and all that stuff continues. It doesn't have to stop, I guess. And I think that's often where the the suffering can be. This is how we are. We can't do anything about it. Whereas what here you're saying and a lot of the stuff we've been talking about is that's really tough. We didn't choose that. But what can we do? Um, Gathering new data, I guess, is the phrase that comes to mind. Um, um, I love compassion in a T-shirt. Tell me about how this came about and what it is.
2: (laughs) Well, compassion in a T-shirt. That's that's my um, YouTube channel, mm. and uh, basically, what what I really like to try to do, and I I feel sort of inspired a bit about, is is trying to uh, make this some of this stuff really accessible and practical, and you know, sort of approaching compassion in everyday life. Mm-hmm. Sometimes compassion comes along with for people with with sort of different the word compassion even you know it comes along with different connotations or it feels like a very deeply spiritual idea or it feels like it yes. it's a very warm and fuzzy thing or
0: mm.
2: you know and and um, and sometimes when you read about compassion it, it can feel you know sort of heavy and and um Mm. and even complex so compassionate t-shirt is really just my attempt to um you know to try to present some of the information in a way that feels kind of um you know practical and and sort of even applicable to everyday life you know what 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 does it mean to try to be more self-compassionate well basically it just means you know that we're able to to validate ourselves, you know, we're able to sort of say, you know, that's a nasty one, that that's sort of that makes sense that you're feeling that way. We want to reassure ourselves, you know, things can change, things might get better. We can, we can work with that too. We want to affirm ourselves, we want to be able to say, okay, so you've got a few strengths here. You can bring some strengths to this situation, some qualities
0: mm-hmm. that you
2: have. And we want to encourage ourselves, you know, okay, come on, let's, let's, let's try that again. Let's see how we go, back on the bike type thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and really just trying to make it real like that. Yeah. And So I, I talk about that while I'm wearing T-shirts.
1: <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, it's, it's so true, isn't it, that, I mean, I guess if we flip right back to earlier in the conversation, it sort of brings up that, you know, Roger's flipping the whole patient-client thing. And again, therapeutic, you know, part of this podcast for me and and talking about this stuff is to see, you know, for people to find a gateway to therapeutic services, whatever that means for them, you know, it not necessarily being a one rigid system. It doesn't have to just be one to one in a room. There can be people wearing t shirts talking about it. You can go hang out in groups. You can kind of go surfing, whatever it is, but just bringing it in in a way that feels accessible because it can feel really heavy it can feel scary and given that we've evolved in the way we have and had these systems in place and whatever's happened to us in our life it's it's potentially very threatening any you know change can be threatening even if it's like you know a different flavor, flavor ice cream could still be what's the, what's that going to be like <laughs> will i like that will that be okay and actually so, it
2: is it is probably really important to mention and you did allude to this earlier. It was one of the things that I wanted to mm. go back to. But but you know, like it, it is, it is absolutely true that that depending on our life experiences and how we're kind of shaped early on and, and our our relationship experiences or our, our care receiving experiences, mm. uh, we, we can have mixed feelings about compassion. You know, we we sometimes people do develop certain what they call fears, blocks, and resistances to compassion. You know yeah. compassion can feel kind of threatening in and of itself. You know, what if what if this person understands me? What what if they mm. um can you know if they can understand me? What if they hurt me? You know, yes. so so sometimes people can be quite reluctant or, or have have some very reasonable reservations, I guess, about mm, mm. compassion and, and especially receiving compassion from others and also self-compassion um so i think this is one of the things that probably a nice one just to to, to mention you know mm-hmm. for everyone that if if, if people are, are hearing some of this and and they're noticing little blocks come up that's mm-hmm. perfectly you know reasonable you know because it, it it it's a it's a tricky one there's a lot to think about there and 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 in, in many ways um, you know, that, that's, that's the work in a way is, is to yes. sort of think, how can I work through some of these blocks? You know, how can I work through some of these fears so that maybe bit by bit I can start to open myself up to receiving compassion or, or bit by bit I can begin to be just that little bit kinder and more supportive and encouraging of myself rather than so self-critical, yeah. for example. And so, yeah, it's sort of moving just gently, gradually, bit by bit towards a a more compassionate kind of life.
1: Very cool. It reminds me a bit of meditation and mindfulness and (laughs) my brain is having thoughts. Of course it is. That's what brains do. And then it can maybe become a bit easier rather than I've got to get rid of these thoughts. It feels like it, there's there's some links there, which is actually, well, that makes total sense that you're you're feeling uncomfortable with it.
2: It's sort of funny, like we, with mindfulness, we we bring our attention to the present and then mm-hmm. we get distracted by other thoughts. And then we notice that we're distracted by other thoughts and then just gently bring ourselves back to the present. And, and with compassion, mm-hmm. we start. To think about compassion for ourselves, we notice these fears, blocks, and resistances arise. And so we start to bring compassion to those fears, blocks, and resistances. And, and sort of there's a similar, similar little cycle there that, that perhaps goes on.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I've so enjoyed talking to you today, Stan. Um, before I let you go, uh, I wanted to invite you to do some word association with me, if that feels okay. It's something I invite all my guests. To do. Um, I think I mentioned young earlier, um, a technique you'd use uh, to reveal parts of the mind that were normally relegated to the unconscious. But um, see if we can have a bit of fun with this, if that feels okay. Go ahead. Cool. Alrighty. Vulnerability.
0: Me. Honesty. Uh, c- courage. Darkness. Um, important. Light. Possible. Intimacy. Safeness. Shame. Guilt. And finally, compassion. Try it. (laughs) Love it. What
2: do you make of of the, the various responses there?
1: I think for me, something I really like about this is it's kind of something I can do with everyone and hear different people's responses, but also around meaning and what we give to words and I guess for me bringing up there not having to be a right or wrong to words so I got an insight into what what it was like for you to just speak without thinking too much um, and what comes out and how how often we can get stuck because of giving meaning to some of those words and actually I guess that's what came up for me how was it for you
2: Yeah, no, I I enjoyed that. I I would almost imagine that I'd like to do that for longer uh, to let go a little bit of the Mm. self-conscious emotions, you know, like, because it's sort of interesting, you know, that, that sort of an exercise, especially in a podcast format, you can't help, I guess, but be a little bit activated in your threat system. You start to have some of the self-conscious emotions, you, mm-hmm. you start to wonder about what how you'll be held in the minds of others.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And this is why or probably this is we, uh, one of them, um, vulnerability. Mm-hmm. I said me, I think. And so I think it is interesting the way that an exercise like that does give us just another lovely example of of how, Vulnerability, self-consciousness, uh, even shame, is just such a prevalent, prominent kind of part of the human experience. I think.
0: Yeah,
1: and what can be such a scary thing, but also such a healing and source of connection. I guess vulnerability, but on the surface, what can be really difficult. But um, I, re- I really appreciate, I really appreciate you you doing that. Um, I know there's there's often deeper to go with those things but um yeah just an insight for each individual what comes up and just that sense that i guess again the other sort of Jungian thing of which sort of links i guess to this which is the sort of shadow side you know pushing that away but actually like what would it be like to have compassion for whatever comes up
2: this is why you know Professor Paul Gilbert I think he has a Jungian, Jungian training background as well but
1: mm.
2: you know he talks a lot about the importance of compassion for the dark side yeah uh, and that, that this is why compassion isn't necessarily exactly the same as love you know because sometimes we are compassionate towards people that we don't like or you know even our enemies and so on
0: mm. and
2: self compassion is often directed towards those parts of ourselves we don't like those those parts of ourselves that maybe even represent our own dark side that we hate or loathe or or feel ashamed of
1: totally and uh, i'm aware of the time but as so often with these things i'm finding a part two would probably be a (laughs) a good thing so maybe sometime in the future we can we can catch up for another chat. I've so valued having you on today, Stan.
2: Yeah. No, that's great. That's been good, Matthew. I appreciate a, a great interview. Well done.
1: Thanks. Well, I'm um, wishing you all the best for the rest of 2023 and everything you, you're doing. Um, anything exciting coming up? I know you're doing some training. Uh, I've seen some things you and, is it Dr. James Kirby, you do some, some work with out in Australia?
2: Yeah, so so James Kirby is at the University of Queensland at the School of Psychology. I'm sort of an adjunct there as well, and and so we do quite a few things together. This year we've got some introductory CFT and advanced CFT training. Mm. Uh, The the introductory is coming up quite soon, I think in May. Mm -hmm. Um, We also have the UQ Compassion Symposium, Mm -hmm. which happens here in Brisbane, I think it's in early to mid-September this year, and this year we have Dr. Marcella Matos from the University Mm -hmm. of Coimbra in Portugal. So she's coming to do a a kind of a keynote address Mm -hmm. and talk about all of her amazing research. Uh, So, yeah, there's there's a a, a number of things um, coming up. It's going to be another exciting year for Compassion, I think.
1: (laughs) Oh, amazing. And... We didn't, we didn't get, get to touch on it, but um, you've, you've authored some great stuff um, and obviously people can, can find that through the, the various sources like your, your website and Amazon and all these kind of places. But is there any, any plans for any more, any more books or any, any writings, publications that we can expect?
2: Well, I've, I've, I've got The Gifts of Compassion, mm-hmm. uh, which is a, a kind of a, a self-help manual and, and um, uh, there's a personal practice workbook that goes along with it. Uh, I have a sort of a modest, you know, kind of uh, list of publications. We'll be mm-hmm. doing more research, though, this year in, in, at the University of Queensland with some honours students and some masters students, uh, mainly looking at, uh, compassion and how compassion might have a, a protective effect on on sort of psychological outcomes and psychological distress, and we're doing a little um, uh, sort of test of compassionate mind training with uh, students out there at UQ, and so yeah, there's there's a few things in the pipeline. Um, hopefully, little some little research publications coming.
1: Fantastic. Oh, but yeah, God.
2: if people are interested, they can certainly go to stansteindl.com. I think it's stansteindl.com, actually, and, and everything's listed there if people are interested.
1: <laughs> oh, amazing. Well, it's been a fantastic conversation and a real privilege to, to speak with you today, Stan. Thanks for bringing so much of yourself to this and, and all your, your knowledge and wisdom and compassion.
2: Thank you, and thanks for all your work too, mate. It's good stuff.
1: Thanks, Stan. Hope to see you again soon. Thank you Stan for coming on the podcast. I found that to be a really energising conversation that covered so many areas of interest and I enjoyed hearing about Stan's journey with compassion. For me Stan embodies what compassion is and even though we were online and on different sides of the world, I could really feel how passionate he is about the subject. I was excited to hear about the research Stan mentioned around compassionate mind training and epigenetics something to pay close attention to, for sure. And I valued exploring Stan's word association. And I was certainly left reflecting on the importance for having compassion for our shadow side. To learn more about Stan and his work, check out stansteindl.com. The Journey Home was brought to you in conjunction with Portobello Behavioral Health. Music and production by Matthew Starrett, edited by Tom Worrell.
0: You've been listening to the Journey Home podcast.